0: If you're completely busy out of your mind, like I feel most days, uh, maybe a meal kit is a good uh, idea for you. Green Chef has a meal plan uh, for every healthy lifestyle from keto, paleo, plant-based diets. It's great for busy people. um, And they have chefs, expert chefs actually, that curate every recipe. There's over 30 meal choices every week. um, And the plan is very uh, flexible. You can switch up what you want uh, for different tastes or different nutrition needs. So you can enjoy restaurant quality dishes in the comfort of your own home. I actually got them for for a few months when our our most recent baby was born. It was really helpful just to know that Everything was in that bag. I could just open the recipe, and in half an hour, I have a really healthy meal for my family, and not have to worry about uh, all these grocery runs all the time. So, if you'd like to try it, go to greenchef.com/asp125 and use the code ASP125 to get $125 off, including free shipping. Again, that's ASP125 is the code. Greenchef.com/asp125 to get $125 off plus free shipping. So give it a shot, Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well.
1: And for me, that was a big difference because I could have walked it, but I love running. And so I was just doing it for the sheer joy of running.
0: Hey, folks, welcome to the show. Mason here. Uh, so sorry, we had some technical difficulties last night and this morning. Couldn't get the episode up. So it's coming out a little late today. But it is a throwback episode. Um, if you missed the episode for your commute this morning that you're used to, I'm so sorry, you get something to listen to, to through the weekend, which is nice. But uh, uh, today's episode is a throwback to 2015 when Kurt was the host. Uh, but the adventure just sounded so cool. I wanted to feature it again, running the length of New Zealand. If you know anything about New Zealand, uh, That sounds absolutely amazing. So I'm excited to hear Anna's story. She's been on the show before. Um, But before we jump into, I did want to thank our patrons who have been supporting us financially. Thank you so much to all the folks who have decided to jump on board uh, since we reintroduced the Patreon page. So if you'd like to check it out, go to our show notes. So thank you so much for that. Um, But yeah, let's go ahead and jump into this story about running the length of New Zealand.
2: Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have a wonderful adventurer to visit with us. I'm really excited. Anna McNuff grew up in the UK. Her parents were Olympians in the Moscow Olympics in rowing, and they raised her to be adventurous and to get outside and to have fun. And since then, she has picked up the torch, and she is an adventurer and endurance athlete, Back in 2013, she bicycled through all 50 U.S. states, including Alaska and Hawaii, which was a fantastic adventure, and she just returned from an adventure where she ran the length of New Zealand, both islands, on backcountry trails, which just sounds fantastic, and I have to throw in there, she has a heart for giving back, and so as she does these adventures, she always tries to stop in with schools and to work with the students so that they can have the seed planted for adventure in their own lives. Anna, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. So, Anna, I just kind of hit some bullet points, but please tell our audience who you are and about your passion for adventure.
1: Yeah, so I was raised in London in the UK, which is a bit of a strange place for an adventurer to be raised um, but I, it's taken me a while to find my, my passion in life, uh, but I've realised that it is going to see new places, meet new people, um, experience fantastic landscapes, but to do it all powered by just my legs and my lungs. So I have a background as an elite athlete, so I use that and I try and take on challenges that really push myself mentally and physically so that I'm always going to learn something at the end. Um and then I just add in a little layer to the, the cake as well. And that is to try and do stuff that it inspires kids to get outdoors and get exploring. And so by the time I've finished my epic journey, that it's had an impact on, on some of the kids back home and in the country that I'm traveling through as well.
2: Oh, that's really fun. So you write about this and speak about this. You have a blog. And yeah. so if people wanted to look into your adventures, how do they find that?
1: Yep, yeah, sure. It's at www.annamcnuff.com. My blog's Com. That's it, simple.
2: Right on. Well, why would you and do you encourage people to do these sorts of adventures?
1: In short, I think it's because having, having the time, when you're in the outdoors and you're, you're living every, every day that you spend out there, you're actually living in the now, which is something we don't do very often. Um, I don't know about anyone else out there, but I spend a lot of my days in my head thinking about the future or the past and not actually open my eyes to what's around me. So I just love adventures for the pure simplicity of them. When your days are filled with sunrises, sunsets, uh, where do I eat, you know, what, where do I sleep, what do I eat, um, where am I gonna find some shelter, all that, all those kind of things. And everything just simplifies. And then I think once you've simplified things, you start to actually appreciate what's important in life. And it is that you miss your friends and you miss your family. And it's that smile that the random stranger gives you at the side of the road. And those are the things that spur your days along. So for me, adventure is just about appreciating the things that already exist in the world, but that we've not yet taken the time to stop and and look at and open our eyes and see that.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. We are so distracted in our modern world by all the entertainment around us and all the things that need to get done, all the expectations that are placed on us and expectations that we set for ourselves and what you're talking about is the, uh, the antidote for yeah. that craziness.
1: Absolutely. And I believe it is an antidote. You're right, it's already there. We just need to see it, that's it.
2: <laughs> that's wonderful, yeah. Well, hey, you just finished your run the length of both islands of New Zealand. So tell us about that.
1: Oh, it was, I know the word get epic gets used a lot, but personally, for me, it was epic. Um, it, It was my second kind of big journey, but it was so different to the bike trip because um, I I learned so much more about myself. It was very much a personal journey in that it was it was incredibly physically arduous, um, probably a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And so every day had its challenges. Uh, My body complained an awful lot because I wasn't a runner before I did this. So the whole journey really was the point of it was to start something that I wasn't sure whether I could finish it. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to say to people, we get so het up on, on whether we may or may not finish things and, and we get so frightened of what people might think of us if we fail. I thought, hey, why don't I go and start something that I'm I'm not quite sure if I'm going to be able to finish um, as a bit of an example to myself and just see what happens. So it was tough along the way. Mentally, it was tough as well. I really suffered from the isolation. South Island of New Zealand, there's not many people there. So that was a huge, huge mental challenge. Um, and I learned so much about myself along the way in terms of opening up and showing vulnerability. And that's actually where where your strength comes from, to be open and honest with people about the, the challenges you're facing rather than trying to pretend everything's all roses all the time. So, yeah, it was an epic journey. And the scenery is just stunning, absolutely stunning.
2: Mm, it sounds really nice. So, details here. You you did the self-supported. Yeah. and you were running backcountry trails. So running as in really, really running or hiking and running or how did that work?
1: Well, so my rule was um, if I can physically run up it, I would. So there were places that I hit where the, um, because it would go up to sort of 1700 meters high. So there'd be ridgelines and things where um, I couldn't physically run up it faster than I could speed hike up it, if that made sense. Um, And then there were some downhill sections where it was very steep and lots of scree where running would have probably ended up in me falling over with my bag tumbling behind me so um I I'd say I I ran 80% of it but I was going as fast as I could when I wasn't running um there was one day I didn't run one day and that was um I'm sure I'll talk about it but um a day I, I actually sprained ankle um and um I just I physically couldn't run it was too painful and I kept I kept going over on it so it was a run and for me that was a big difference because I could have walked it but I love running And so I was just doing it for the sheer joy of running and the challenge of it as well. I think your body behaves in very different ways um, when you're set out to do a run compared to when you set out to do a hike. So I was trying to find out what would happen to me if I tried
2: to run it. So it was about 1900 miles.
1: Yes, 1911 miles exactly, about 72 marathons by the end.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. How um, far did you go each day?
1: um so i averaged in the south island which is more mountainous. um i averaged about 15 miles a day and then in the north island which um slightly flatter more well-graded trails i averaged about 20 miles a day um yeah my pack was about 14 kilos so <laughs> it was a yeah it was a substantial challenge
2: 14 kilos 30 pounds
1: yeah, thirty pounds. Yeah, sorry. I'm trying <laughs> to <back>. American.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, thirty pounds is a fairly light pack for backpacking, but that is heavy for running. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So and you had back. you had a tent and food and everything in there.
1: Yeah, tent and food, and then it would go up. Um, it would go up by about another fifty percent when I had to carry food for up to seven days because sometimes there was up to a week between towns, so I couldn't. You can't resupply in the middle of the bush. Um, so I'd have to be carrying seven days worth of food. So then it got, got a bit heavier. Um, but I didn't actually, I, I, when I left, I thought my, my backpack was actually going to be around about seven kilos. And then I put some things in it and I put a few more things in it and then I knew it was heavier, but I deliberately didn't weigh it because I just didn't want to know. I just thought, (laughs) what is the point in me knowing exactly how heavy this pack is? I know it feels heavy. And so I basically just lied to myself for three months. Until someone finally weighed it while I was in the shower. They snuck off and weighed it. I was so annoyed. And (laughs) uh, yeah, they told me that it was 14 kilos and that was without any food in it. So um, yeah, (laughs) denial. It's your best friend.
2: You know, it's kind of funny because um, one of the things that I do as an adventure sport is climb 14ers. Yeah. And I didn't keep count. I tried not (laughs) to know, just like you said. I said, I just want to enjoy the experience. I don't want this to be about, you know, climbing all the peaks.
1: That's it. Really? Yeah.
2: One of my friends on one of our climbs started saying, well, tell me which ones you've climbed. And so I started listing them and he counted them up and told me the number. I was like, oh, dude. Evil. <laughs> I know it. It's a dirty trick. So someone did that to you with your backpack.
1: Yes, it because it's so annoying because I think if you get to know your mind well enough, you know what to do to, to manage it and to manage your thought processes. And then if something comes in that kind of infiltrates that, it's really frustrating because you're like, no, I'm trying to do my best here. I know, you know, I'm going to freak myself out if I keep telling myself this is a heavy pack. But if I pretend it's only seven kilos, happy days. <laughs>
2: Well, in my climbing, one of the things I often did was climb a mountain two or three times. If I enjoyed the hike, I would go back and do it over, invite other people and say, hey, this was a great one. Let's go do it. Well, once, as soon as I knew what the number was, I was like, oh, I don't yeah. want to climb one twice anymore. Are you kidding oh. me? Are- <laughs>
1: Isn't that <a> shame?
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, how fun is that? My goodness. So about a 30-pound pack, 1,900 yeah. miles. Yeah. Um, how many days was this?
1: So I did it over, I took five and a half months, but um, so around about 148 days, but about six weeks of that was actually off the trail. So either having a rest day or because I was going into schools along the way, sometimes I'd take three or four days to do the rounds in a big city at all the schools. So, which was actually more exhausting sometimes than the running. I had one particular, um, one particular town. It was always a logistical nightmare because I would have to... I didn't have much connection, so I'd have to try and organize school talks around about a month in advance, but I'd only have two days of internet connection to do it. So I'd fire out all these emails to schools, and then I'd get to the next town and check them all. And I ended up in one town with um, nine school talks booked in in the space of three days. (laughs) And they were were my three days off. So I ran out of town, just like this ragged mess. Um, Yeah, so.
2: Well, how fun, though, to connect with the local people and especially with the students
1: are amazing and they the thing I love about kids is there's this awesome quote by a spiritualist called Debbie Ford that says we're born as a castle of a thousand rooms and um, as time goes by we kind of shut off parts of ourselves and we shut down rooms and we end up as like a one-bed apartment Mm. and the thing about kids is that they're still these castles they can see endless possibilities their imaginations have no bounds they don't feel embarrassed about asking questions um, and so I leave, I mean, selfish, really, I leave it just on a high from their, their energy as much as they enjoy hearing my story. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a win-win for everyone,
2: really. I love it. That is so much fun. You know, kids are like that. And when you talk to an adult and you say, Hey, I'm going to go run the length of New Zealand. I, a lot of adults, their first response is, Oh, huh, yeah. I, I would never attempt. Yeah. That. But kids, they're, yeah. they're wide open. They're like, really? Cool. How do you do that?
1: yeah that's exactly. and they have so many questions. they want to know the details, and I think you know we we don't give kids credit for that sometimes. They're such curious creatures. they're sponges, their brains are sponges. so yeah, it's 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 great fun.
2: i uh, I encourage anybody that can do adventures with kids to do it because it's so yeah. rewarding. It's you silly.
1: adventure with your kids, don't you?
2: Oh yeah, you bet. yeah <laughs> absolutely. um so in the u s, we have several trails that people use for through hiking or running. You know, we have the Appalachian Trail, we have the Continental Divide Trail, we have the Pacific Crest Trail, and a variety of other trails that don't cross the whole U.S. So is what you ran on, is is that an established route in New Zealand like that?
1: No. Do you know what is absolutely brilliant about the Tiara Trail is that it's only, it's really in its infancy. So there are only um, 200 people that that through hike the trail this year. And um, two years ago, there were only 50 people. So it's really just trying to find its legs. And what's special and what's different about it, having, I met a lot of American hikers actually. And I think like the PCT is very well graded from what I understand. Whereas the the New Zealand trails, they tend to be just completely changeable and you can never predict what's ahead. They go through lots of rivers. You have to do river crossings. Um, You might sometimes be up on a ridgeline running on scree. And then the next time you're going to be running through a swampy forest, you know, um, knee deep in mud. (laughs) Or you might wind up on a sheep track and you're constantly going, is this really the trail? Uh, At one point, I remember I was climbing up on almost a near vertical, you know, a very, very steep face which is quite hard with a heavy pack on your back. And I was sort of hand over fist following these little rock piles and it started snowing and the wind came in. It was really exposed and I just caught myself. I thought oh, if my mother could see me now, but, um, <laughs> it, yeah, the the trail is very much finding its feet and it means it's not been overused and it's not been, um, you know, it's not very well manicured in most places, which is actually really nice because you you know, you feel like you're the only person out there and, and I struggled with that because I had sort of three days and nights, um, a lot of occasions where I didn't see a soul, which is quite a long time for the developed world. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, very unique trail, I'd say, and I would definitely recommend it for anyone that loves to be in and around nature. That
2: well, it just sounds beautiful. Mm. Wonderful. You know, I understand that the weather in New Zealand can change very abruptly too. Yes. Did you run right. into any issues with that?
1: Um, just, well just once really that affected affected my um timing while I was actually on the trail um we made it me and about it was actually the best day for camaraderie there were six other trampers on this section of the trail and we'd left one hut the night before and it was about um 20 miles to the next hut and we got to that next hut everyone came in at various stages um And then we really heard the weather start to pick up. But we hadn't been able to get a forecast for a couple of days. And one guy managed to to get get some information via GPS. And um, it just hailed and and snowed all night. And the wind battered the walls. And then the next day, it just carried on. So it was clear that we weren't leaving that hut. Um, And we could get reports that we had to go over a pass. But there were big 120-kilometre-hour gusts going on. And our water source had actually turned to complete sludge, which was a bit worrying at the time. But it was great because I was in a hut with seven people and one of the guys had a carbon fiber guitar. So he just started on the Johnny Cash tunes and we all <laughs> sat round singing and, and he was reciting all these other, um, other old poems as well. He was brilliant, a Canadian guy. But little did I know that my mum was doing her absolute nut because she'd seen my GPS tracker stop moving and oh, then no. it didn't move. Yeah. And um, I, had a, I had a safety mechanism on it, which you press a button and it says, oh, I'm okay. But, um, and then there's a separate one, which sends a slightly different message. So I thought I'd press one, then the other to show her that I was okay. And I was physically, you know, pushing these buttons. And she took that as she's not okay, because she's pushed two different buttons. Someone stolen the tracker and uh, <laughs> emailed and called all my friends and I emerged from the bush a couple of days later to have all my mates be like, are you all right? Are you alive? Because your mom called me. <laughs> oh, no. So embarrassing. <laughs> mom.
2: <laughs> oh, that's, that's hilarious.
1: Yeah, bless her. You need people to worry, though. You really do need people to worry if you don't, you know, if something does look amiss. So I'm very grateful for that.
2: Man, you said the wind was at 120 kilometers per hour. Yeah. So that's 72 miles an hour.
1: Yeah. That's which, a
2: hefty wind.
1: Yeah, and with snow and stuff as well, it's just – and it, it's hard because I always say there's a you know there's a fine line between being a badass and a dumbass, and um, I think sat there I debated probably until about three o'clock that afternoon whether I was going to push on or whether I was going to spend the night in that hut, and I just decided I, I went I actually packed up my stuff to leave, and I thought what am I doing? I'm in a hut surrounded by people I really am enjoying spending time with. Why would I go and run on into risk you know risky elements? And possibly camp by the side of the trail by myself in the snow when I've got this group of people. So that was one of the the points in the trip actually where I went. You know what? It's about enjoying the journey, not about oh I've got to get to this place at this time. I have to push on. So that was the best decision, really.
2: You know, I don't know anything about the history of this trail nor the people that have hiked it, but I'm guessing that you probably set a speed record.
1: Do do you know what? I didn't because people have run it unsupported. um, That people have run it supported. Sorry. So. Um, there's a guy, a British ultra runner called Jez Bragg, who did it with a. He's a North Face athlete, and he did it with a full support crew, um, and he ran it in something ridiculous, like 53 days. Mm. Um, so I didn't set a speed record, but I was the first first person, man or woman, to run it fully unsupported. Um, so I can take that crown, but I made that decision right from the outset. I just thought I. I don't know, travel for me is about immersing yourself in the landscape and taking the time to get sidetracked, to meet the people. And so I used my full six-month visa in New Zealand. I used every day I had to, <laughs> to do that, basically. And I, and I wouldn't change it for the world.
0: Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
2: Tell us about a time that things didn't go as expected. Then I'm sure that you ran into some difficulties, especially unsupported. So, yes. uh, how did you manage? What advice yes. would you have for others? What lessons were learned?
1: Darkest day on the trail. Um, I'd been sat in this village waiting for um, waiting for the rains to stop, and I just hit the sort of infamous west side of New Zealand, which is where um, the rains don't get stopped by the mountain fronts anymore, and so you just get these deluges. And we'd had two days of really heavy rain. And the next section of trail required me to cross a river 30 times. Oh. And, yeah. I, and I'm from London. You know, we build bridges over our rivers in London. The Kiwis, they just put the trail straight through them. And, um, and so you have to be very savvy about when you know, when the river's up, when it's down and looking at the colour of the water and and just checking whether it's safe to cross or not. Because what can look like perfectly safe um, once you're in the middle of it and you lose your footing, um, you can quite easily be swept downstream. So I've been waiting for this, this the rains to stop. And then, of course, afterwards, you know, the surface runoff, you've then got to wait for the river levels to come down. And because I had to cross a river to get across to this section of trail. And I went up to this the, over this section of trail and I stayed in this hut where apparently it was supposed to be lots and lots of tourists. And it was supposed to be packed. And I was worried that I might not get a space in the hut. I got up there and I opened the door. I was like, (laughs) no one up there. It was just completely deserted, obviously, because it had been pouring with rain and there were rivers everywhere and people had thought better of it. And so I stayed there night there and it was really cold. And I woke up the next morning and I always say that days on the trail, they're never about just one thing. It's not about the weather. It's not about your mood. It's not about how physically tough it is. It's a combination of all those things. And something just felt really off. And I started down, basically you run run alongside this river and it starts as a tiny little, um, you're scrambling down boulders because you're right at the source. And it's all very slippery and slow going. And I was getting really frustrated because I had to run 18 miles that day and I was making slow progress and I was feeling creeped out. I was feeling lonely. I was worried why there wasn't anyone on this trail at this point. And I just kept getting so frightened every time I crossed the river. I'd, I'd take my safety tracker off my backpack and I'd put it in a waterproof bag and I'd clip it to my sports bra in case something happened and I got, you know, I lost my footing and my pack got lost. I thought, well, at least I'll have that safety tracker with me. And my mind was just whizzing with, you know, if I fall here, I could get, if I get trapped under that boulder, no one's going to come by for days. What happens? And then I stepped off this rock and a bit of undergrowth gave way. And my ankle, I just went over on it and it made this massive crack. I was oh. hit the deck. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, I just lay there, just swearing. And I thought, I thought that was it. I thought I'd broken it. I thought it was going to be the end of my trip. And then after about five minutes, I was like, right, I'm going to try and move. I'm going I'm to put my weight on it. And I stood up and I put it down and it went over again. I thought, oh, that was not good. Um, but it was actually only sprained which, thank goodness, it wasn't any worse than that. But I don't know if you've ever tried to run with a sprained ankle or even move with it, when it and it just kept going. And it took me about four hours to get to a place that was, was flat enough for me to put my tent up, and I hadn't seen anyone in two days. I was four days from the next town, or I could go back where I came from. And I was just faced with this decision. I sort of crawled into my tent and looked at my ballooning ankle And I just wanted to call someone. I just wanted someone to sort of verbalize this, you know, this decision process I was going through, but I had no one. And it was basically, in my mind, everything that I'd been afraid of at the start of the trip, being lonely, exhausted, tired, injured, it just all happened. But what I realized, it was kind of like rock bottom. But but I realized that actually when you get down to your rock bottom, you get down to the place where all of your fears are completely actualized then the bottom kind of just falls away and you find a way to deal with it and i just remember being overwhelmed with this deep sense of calm once i realized this is it you know this is me dealing with a situation that i've put myself willingly and it's not going to beat me it can't beat me so i just made a made a pact to actually just go to sleep and and make a decision in the morning and in the end I um I pushed on, and um and I had to keep my ankle strapped up for about six weeks after that. Um and yeah, I had to actually walk. The only day I walked of the whole trip was the following day, um because I had to hobble on the ankle. But I made about twelve miles. Wow. Um, but yeah, I just learned a lot about you know you can you can be afraid of so many things, but you're you're always you know if you're still alive, <laughs> you're stronger than it. You always stronger than it. And um and that's what that sh- that showed me really. So. I actually found it a very, I mean, it was quite traumatic, but a very empowering experience, really. Um, Yeah. And I had a secret weapon as well. I had a pair of um, um, rainbow pants that had a unicorn and a robot on them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even joking. And I packed them because I knew that I was going to have bad days on the trail. And I always think when you hit a bad situation, you've got that choice. You've got you know, it's going to be miserable anyway. Do I continue to think it's going to be miserable or do I take the other option? Do I snap myself out of my mindset and try and, you know, see the good and what's going on and get some perspective. So they became my pants of perspective and I put them on because you can't be unhappy when you're wearing rainbows and unicorns and robots on your legs. (laughs) Um, And they matched my ankle strapping as well. So I ran through, you know, I, I walked through the bush the day after, but then the day after that I was managing to run again and ice it in rivers ice my ankle in rivers and um, yeah, wearing these ridiculous leggings, but um, they were my, they were my secret weapon. Yeah. And they worked. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Boy, attitude is everything sometimes, isn't it? It
1: is. It definitely is. I had so much torrential rain as well in the North Island. And I think I posted this one video on, on my, on my blog. And I think I said something like it's pouring with rain. You could see it. it was like sideways rain in my face. I was soaked to the skin. I still had um, about 20 miles to run. Cause that was a marathon day. And I was like, Here's the thing. You can either get miserable or you can get happy. And I'm going to get happy. <laughs> I I was going to be happy. That was it. <laughs> oh, that's
2: great. You know, speaking of rain, before we started, you mentioned that it, when you were biking through the 50 U.S. states. Yeah. That you came through Colorado in 2013, September, yep. during the floods that we yep. had, that were, were pretty bad. So yeah. tell us how that worked out
1: oh you know it was probably one of those situations where I felt very very naive and stupid I have to say um and where I realized that the, Ameri- the American weather is so much bigger than than British weather I think I got home after that and we were having floods in Britain and people were standing in their houses with it up to them an- their ankles complaining and I just thought goodness me you've got no idea um uh, yeah, so I'd actually been in the state for around about a week. I had, had a fantastic time. I'd come in from the southwest. I'd gone over um, five five passes of the Rocky Mountains. I'd gone then back down south of Denver, and I was hanging out in Highlands Ranch. And uh, I saw the floods going on the news, and I thought, Phew, right. Um, and because I was then getting ready to leave, I'd had a lovely time. I'd been well-rested with the family that had taken me in. Uh, and I started watching the news, and I thought, well, I've got to go now because you know with flooding, it just gets worse. And so I went to leave, and I rode about um, sixty miles north of Denver, and I um, I was just silly me. I was coming to coming to about two miles from the campground I'd picked for the night, but of course I didn't think about the fact that the campground was going to be underwater. But um, there was this one point towards the end of the day; it was just getting dark. And I went down a, a, a road that had a closed road sign across it, which is not unusual when you're on a bike to nip round things. i had done it before. Um, but it started to get really eerie. And, you know, I could see the houses half underwater and all the toys and things floating in the front garden and trees that had been deposited in the middle of the road. And there was like a gas tank that was there. And I just started to feel really sick. I thought this, like this is not a place I'm supposed to be and then i got to a point in the road where it had been completely washed away so um between me and where the road carried on was this river and i just i just you know thank goodness i was paying attention and not off with the fairies because i would have cycled straight into it mm-hmm. um but i just started to feel yeah like i really shouldn't be here so i turned my bike around and as i turned my bike around a car came towards me and i thought They must have seen, they must have swerved around a couple of trees. They must have come through the closed roadside. Like, they're going to stop. Surely they're going to stop. And they didn't stop. They sped up, and they went past me about two metres to my left, and they flipped off the side of the road and into the water. And I just threw my bike down, and I ran over to them. And the wheel, it's like a movie. I remember, I can see it so clearly. The wheels were still spinning. I could hear the people inside. And I got this, the, the door started to come open, so... I don't I've probably never done this. So if you try to stand on the edge of a crumbling road and open the door of like a Land Rover, but it requires a lot of ab strength, which I didn't really have. So I was trying to lever this door open, and then in my wisdom, I decided that I was going to try and pull this quite big guy out of out of the Land Rover with one hand as I held the door open with the other hand, which was the most ridiculous idea. And I dropped the door, and it hit him across the bridge of the nose. And I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to kill him." <laughs> no. Um, and anyway, and then eventually, I was I was saying to him, "Is there anyone else in the car? Is there anyone else in the car?" And he got out, and then he he wasn't listening to me. And then I heard that there was his wife was in the passenger seat, so we got her out. And I was very conscious they were going to go into shock. But what I remember thinking and actually feeling quite guilty about was. Was my I was so aware of my own personal safety. I know they always warn you of that in in help you know in uh, first aid environments that you should always protect yourself first. But I just I was so aware that I didn't want to put myself in danger, um, which is a very strange feeling. Um, and anyway, I eventually found out they couldn't hear me because they were deaf. Um, and so I called the I called the police and the poli- and I told them exactly where I was, exactly what point on the road I was. And then I could see these lights appear on the other side of the road. And the police called me back on my phone and they said, where are you? And I told them again and they said, you can't be there. There's a big hole in the road.
2: (laughs) You're on the wrong side. (laughs) I
1: know, you're on the wrong side. The hole is the problem. Anyway, they came round, but... I, you know, we did all the things, but at one point, I just remember they were okay. It was just his injury that I'd given him, which was very nice of me. <laughs> um, but they were so, they were so, you know. and At one point, they typed on my, they typed on their phone, you know, thank you so much for being here. But I just remember at one point, like I was okay, I was okay, and then it was all going on around me. The police were all around me, and I just sat down the road in the headlight of the police cars and just started crying. And I think it was just I'd never had anything like that happen to me. And it took me about two weeks after that event. I eventually made it out of the state about three days later because I went and um, just holed up in a hotel. And um, it took me about two weeks to try and process what had happened, to try and understand why I was there. Was I there to help those people? Was I there to remind me to be grateful for the good things in my life? Um and I kind of, I took it as both of those things. I think that was the only thing you can do. But it really, it really did mess with me for a while. And I went very quiet on my social media. And I didn't tell my mom until I got home either. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was, I'd never, I'd never been so close to, to, to things that were so real and, and affected so many people's lives. And even when I was in the hotel, there were people there that had lost their homes. And just to see that firsthand, I just, you know, my heart went out to them.
0: Mm.
2: Wow. That's something else. You probably mm. saved their lives.
1: Well, you don't know. I mean, I probably tried to kill him by dropping the door on his face.
2: (laughs) Maybe that's why you were there. Maybe he needed a wake-up call.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) life-saving.
2: Well, I mentioned before the call, we were in the floods, but we live in the mountains just above a canyon that washed out, so we were more or less trapped for about six weeks. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, it's a story that I really appreciate you telling because it's close to home.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what it was like to be living through it.
2: Well, it was something. Mother Nature can certainly dish out a lot of uh, amazing experiences, no doubt mm-hmm. about that.
1: That's it. Um, and actually, I'll just add in at this point. So I did get my fair share of weather. I had, then I hit, I don't know if anyone remembers, there were um, blizzards in South Dakota in October that killed like 20,000 cattle. Oh, um, yeah. I got stuck in that. Oh, <laughs> so no. um, that was fun. And then there was something they called the Arctic Blast that hit um, Arkansas, and all around the Ozarks, um, round about uh, December, January of that year, just uh, over the New Year period. And I got I got stuck in that as well. So I was um, riding through temperatures where it was colder there than it was in Alaska at that point, which I thought was quite entertaining.
2: And I <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: so I got my fair share. I got my fair share.
2: So where in the Ozarks were you when that hit?
1: Um, I was actually um, near oh, Oak Grove. Oak Grove is it? Um, is a tiny little town I'm trying to think of the other towns but r- quite quite near the border the northern border um and, and it was getting so close to it. my flight out to Hawaii was from from Dallas and I still had to nip up and touch Kansas goodness me Kansas was a pain with its position in the country um, <laughs> I had to nip up and touch Kansas go down through Oklahoma and, and so I called it the dash for Dallas so I was getting held up I was like I've got a plane to make I can't oh it was yeah it was entertaining it was great it was like a yeah, it was like a real chase.
2: Oh, that's fun. The dash you made through Oklahoma must have passed through where I grew up. I grew up in Tahlequah, so you had to be close to there.
1: No way! I bet I was, you know. What I, what actually happened in Oklahoma was there was a lot of fog, so I tried to come off the main highway because I felt very unsafe. And I ended up on clay farm tracks, and then all the clay clogged up my wheels. And so I spent an hour like running with my bike. <laughs> um, yeah, it was oh, good good times good times. <laughs> it sounds
2: about right. Well, what a fantastic adventure. Oh, so yeah. overall, the US biking adventure, would you mm. recommend it?
1: Oh, 100%. I and I went because I don't I I thought everyone thinks they know America, especially British people or, or you know, anyone from the developed world. They have this preconceived idea about who Americans are and and it's just from just from the films. That's what we see, you know. We have b- b- bright lights New York City, we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, California. That's basically the way, you know, in a nutshell, we see America. And I just thought, look at all that massive space in the middle. Like, what on earth goes on in there? So I went to find out, and what I found was just small communities of wonderful, like, down-to-earth people, um, and I think you do have such a strong sense of community in the U.S., definitely. And I just found so much diversity in terms of geology, wildlife, attitudes, something that's probably unrivaled in a single country anywhere else across the globe. And so I would definitely recommend it, even if you're an American, to go and explore that.
2: Well, I, I think that sounds wonderful. I need to do that myself.
1: Yeah, do it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, hey, what about... Books or projects or things like that that you have in the works. What's on the calendar for you?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm writing a book about the New Zealand run, um, which I feel like I feel like I have to do. You know, they say you know when you create art of some form, it's kind of the work you cannot do. I just feel like this is a story that needs to come out, and it's not it's not just because it was a fantastic adventure and I met wonderful people and I saw beautiful things, but it's also that that mental process I went through of starting something that I was afraid of and being consistently frightened all the way along, but also making the decision halfway through that I would start showing people that I was frightened because I think that's the way that you you can help people. You know, we're all in the same boat. We're all frightened of things, whether it's climbing up a mountain or whether it's calling your dad you haven't spoken to in 20 years. You know, it's the same process. And so I just want to talk to people in the book about the physical journey but also the journey i went through in in being okay with you know vulnerability basically and and that i realized that saying i'm hurting and i'm in pain is not the same as saying i'm going to give up they're they're two very very different things um so yeah that book probably finish a draft by the end of the year and hopefully be out sometime next year that is my
2: project at the moment so people need to pay attention to your blog so yes. that when the book comes yeah. out they can find out how to get a hold of it
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'll do a little book tour, but I'm not sure whether that'll be outside New Zealand yet. But I'd love to come and tell the tales from the book and bring it back to life. So um, yeah, it's a very cathartic process and I'm really enjoying it.
2: Well, please, Anna, let us know when you're ready to release the book. We'll have you back on so we can let everybody know more details about it. Oh, thank you. That sounds really like a delightful book. It does, right down my alley.
1: Yeah, well, I just, I, I want people to put the book down and I think women especially put the book down and say, man she was she was frightened you know but she did it anyway and maybe I can go and do X whatever it is um, so yeah hopefully that will be the impact of it
2: That's cool So again your blog is is Yeah, Yeah, that's right yeah animanuff.com Wow do you have a name for the book yet?
1: Uh, not yet actually not yet I might call it something to do with um, I was a northbounder or a Nobo for short. Um, so I might call it Nobo because it's a little bit abstract, but there's, there was this sort of pride that went with being a northbounder because all the trail notes were written in the other direction and 170 of the through hikers went southbound and there were only 30 northbounders in the whole season. So we got to meet a lot more people, but we were also doing everything in reverse, which made my head hurt. So I stopped reading the trail notes. Um, <laughs> Because it looks different in reverse as well. Um, But there was this real, you know, it was a real sense of pride in being a northbounder. Um, uh, And so that was quite, quite an important part of the journey as well. So, yeah, I might call it something
2: to do with that. You know, there is a movie here in the U.S. about the Appalachian Trail called Southbounder.
1: Oh, is there? I didn't know that.
2: And it has the same sort of an emphasis. In the U.S., being in the northern hemisphere, people start south. So they get better weather earlier and they race north. You did the – most people do that. So if you do it backwards, that means you're starting in the bad weather and hiking into the hot weather, which means that's what you were doing in New Zealand.
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I did it because the time of year – I was actually going to go the other way around, but I flipped it because – um, because the snow hits the South Island just as I was still planning to be going into it, which was just making no sense. So so yeah, but they did feel this kind of like salmon swimming upstream vibe to it. I didn't know about that. I'll, I'll look that one up, Southbounder. I knew everyone always talks to me about Wild. <laughs> they tell me, they're like, oh, I've read this book Wild. It reminds me of you. I'm like, really? I <laughs> <laughs> didn't come anything like that. But
2: yeah, it's interesting. No, I, you, I don't see you in Wild. That's a little bit no, different <laughs> that's
1: what I watched the film and I was like, She's not even tied her hair up. Who does that? We're hiking.
2: (laughs) Well, we look forward to your book certainly, and you also like to help people with mini adventures. You mentioned there in the UK. Tell us what you're doing there.
1: Well, um, I I guess I appreciate the reason I share my journeys is because I appreciate not everyone can go on a massive adventure, and perhaps they don't want to. But the other thing I try and do is actually to create small adventures within the UK that aren't expensive that are, are just very, very accessible. And especially because I live in London, which people have this perception that um, you can't be adventurous in London. There's nothing to see, I've seen it all, you know, it's, it's just all concrete. And, and actually, so I'd set this challenge of, um, I was gonna spend six weeks sleeping out in every county, which are kind of our version of states, every county that surrounded London. And then on the last week, on the seventh week, um, we would sleep out in London itself in zone one. Um, and so, what started with four of us grew to a list of 150 people's emails I had that wanted to come along. Wow. And on the last, yeah, phenomenal. And this just goes to show that all people needed was I was, I took a very kind of like, well, we're going anyway, come or don't come. You know, it wasn't sort of a, um it it wasn't like we're asking people and 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 we just led by example and what i'd say is right we meet here bring your debit card it's going to be no no more than the equivalent of 50 dollars for a return train ticket we're going to travel for an hour out of london we'd hike to a hilltop or we'd go and find a forest um we'd take like bivvy bags you know just a, a um a bag over your sleeping bag and we'd sleep out under the stars and we would take a picnic, or we'd go for a pub dinner beforehand. And everyone would just chat. And we'd normally have about 15 people in, in each group. And, and yeah, and they would just slow life down. And I think we always did it on a Wednesday night. So people would leave their desk at five o'clock, and they would be back at their desk for nine o'clock the next morning. But they'd had this adventure in the middle. And it was creating time and space where there wasn't any before. And it's a concept that Alistair Humphreys started developing, but I wanted to prove that it could work around London. And the appetite for it was phenomenal. There's now a Facebook group of 800 people um, called London Adventure Army who do this on a regular basis because of it. Um, and we actually carried on for 25 consecutive weeks. We just kept going, we just kept going around the clock. Um, yeah, so that was a that was a a big movement that we started around smaller adventures.
2: Well, that's neat. Yeah, really cool. So accessible as well. And think about the friendships you made along the way.
1: Oh, that is, and that's it. That's what, it, and, and this is the thing, I think, although we're a very technologically connected world, we are missing human connection. We're missing that sitting around, having a chat, pers- passing around, you know, the, the jelly sweets and realizing that the olives are going around 10 times because no one likes olives. You know, it's <laughs> like all those, all those little things where the other option would be that you'd gone home, you'd Told yourself you're really tired. You'd slumped in front of the TV. You know, you'd gone to sleep. You'd woken up and you'd gone to work the next day. But instead, you've gone and created this environment where you've got to know people and you've just just gone back a bit in time, really. And I mean, just laying, looking up at the stars with a cold breeze across your nose. I don't think you can be any happier. I mean, maybe I'm insane, but um, and everyone felt that. So it was wonderful to watch other people that were perhaps nervous about it come out and try it for the first time, and then they were addicted.
2: That's neat. So, by any chance, are you familiar with what Tim Moss is doing?
1: Tim Moss. I know the name.
2: So, Tim Moss is from the UK as well. Yes, and yeah. And he does adventures around the world, much like yeah. yourself. And yes. he has started trying to encourage people to do the mini adventures like you're describing. So, you guys are on a parallel track.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, He, he just did a big cycle, didn't he? With, um, I think his partner's called Laura. I think I followed that on Twitter. Yeah, it's... um. I think it's important when people who do big journeys also do the little ones because that means there's something for everyone. And the spirit of adventure is the same in all of them.
2: Yeah, that's neat. It's so fun to connect with people all over the place that are doing this sort of thing. But what I love about Alistair Humphreys, Tim Moss, and yourself is the way that you're trying to get people into the little mini adventures. Um, it's a big part of our show is to encourage people to get out and do things, whatever's within your reach. You know, yeah. You don't have to run the length of New Zealand to have yeah. an amazing time.
1: Absolutely, hundred percent. The best adventure I had is uh, a friend and I went. Yeah, we went to rollerblade. We spent four days trying to rollerblade a roller hundred miles around Amsterdam, and it went completely wrong. It was a complete disaster. She broke her hand. I had to eat an ice cream and splint her fingers together. And we had to um, make a, a sling out of the leg warmers we were wearing because we were dressed in eighties clothing, and it was a complete <laughs> disaster. But we bonded so much and she's one of my best friends now because you. there was that level of understanding, there was trust, there was changing plans when things had gone wrong and it was only the space of four days and we barely laughed our way through it. So um, it, they definitely don't have to be big adventures to be fantastic adventures.
2: Well, I want to go back to the distance running bit. I know mm. that there are people that would like to do it, but let's face it, distance running is uh, physically demanding, Yes. Right? So, what advice do you have for people who have an interest, but they're not quite in shape, and, yeah. you know, how do they get started?
1: My biggest point of advice would just be to have faith in your body, because I, like I say, I wasn't a runner. I'm, a, I'm an athlete in some form, but I would actually get injured if I would run more than three times a week. And so, the reason I chose to do a running journey is, as I said, because I thought I couldn't, but I'd read all the the Born to Run literature And all of the things that said that we, as endurance mammals, we have—you know—we have the greatest endurance of all mammals on the planet. Human beings do, and the fact that there are the Tarahumara Indian tribe that live in the the Copper Canyon that can run four hundred and thirty-five miles in forty-eight hours—I just thought that is in our genetic makeup. We are running people, whether we like it or not. So I would just say: start slow, start steady, and. And if you shove your body, I found this out with a bike trip as well. If you shove your body gently, but consistently in one direction, it will catch on. It really will catch on. I I mean, I suffered um, aches and pains through the run, uh, but my ankle was really the only thing that was a a showstopper. Everything else eventually worked itself out. And your body is just an incredible machine. Um, We are built to adapt. And that's what we do. It's why we're here. It's how we've evolved to be the way we are. So... I would just say start start slow have patience but determination and and the body will catch on.
2: What about footwear? Did you wear tennis shoes or hiking boots or trail runners? What what would you recommend there?
1: I actually went I love running barefoot. I absolutely love running in minimal trainers, but um because of the the rocks and the things that were going to kind of cut up my the soles of my feet, I actually went in quite supportive um Brooks trail runners. So um, and I went through five pairs, but they they did me absolutely fine. i got a lot of hikers say to me, oh, you really need the ankle support. And yes, I did go over on my ankle, but I actually quite liked being a bit more nimble. I couldn't run in boots anyway. Um, I would probably have gone for a bit more of a kind of fell running grip, like a bit more almost like rubber spikes. Um But then I also needed something that I could use when it was flat, when it was a gravel road. So um, I think with limited funds, I I made a good choice. Yeah, so a good supportive set of light trail shoes.
2: Hmm. And food. You had to carry a lot of food on your back. But how do you carry enough when you're running and still have a lightweight pack?
1: Yeah. Do you know, I I mean, I think you realize that you can go hungry for a few days. It's It's not the end of the world. But food is such a huge part of the motivation. You know, if I ran out of chocolate, there was... There were serious consequences. And it was normally I'd run out on chocolate because I'd eaten my own rations. You know, I had no one else to blame. I'd had double rations the day before. Um, But I would generally, I just would eat whatever my body was craving. Again, like, listen to your body. It knows what it wants. And so um, I tended to eat a lot of peanut butter and, and jam wraps, although I got really, really sick of them by the end of it. Um, or lots of cheeses, um, but lots of nuts and seeds and dried fruits and things like that. I just, um, I really missed fresh food because you can't, ca- you know, you can't carry fresh food, like even an apple. Oh, sometimes I'd taken an apple for, for, for the first day and it was such a treat, Um But really simple food and just whatever my body was craving. And I'd try and stock up at the town based on what I'd craved the week before, if that makes sense. But definitely, you've got to have a treat at the end of the day. I I met people that – some people that were doing it just on cereal bars. they just eat, you know, eight cereal bars in a day because it was lighter. But I just thought, what a miserable experience, you know. I really looked forward to cooking up my noodles and soup and stuffing a bit of cheese in there and making a compromise, yeah.
2: We had a fellow on recently that was arguing that if we had a fat-based diet for adventure sports, we would do better. And it sounds like you had calorie-dense food, that your peanut butter, cheese, nuts, yeah. all these things have the right kinds of fats that our bodies need.
1: Definitely. And I think, you know, the problem really is processed food. So trying to avoid processed foods where you can is, is probably the best bet. But um eating really actually, I mean, I love eating, but it actually becomes a bit of a pain. You know, I, I, I would actually run for a couple of hours longer than I should have because I couldn't be bothered to stop and eat. Um, so that showed that I was actually quite tired, but, but yeah, definitely calorie dense foods. Cause you just need to get it's fuel. You really just need to. And that's the amazing thing about the human body. If you fuel it at the right level, it really will just keep going. So yeah, definitely calorie dense
2: stuff. Okay. This is the rich uncle question. I love to hear it. So assume that a rich uncle called you up and said, it's all expense paid, one month, any adventure you want. Where are you going?
1: Do you know what? I'm a bit fascinated at the moment with the Greek islands I would go and spend a few months just swimming, open water swimming. I have, I'd, I'd, if money's no object, then I'm going to get some skipper who knows the local waters to come out and support me and to teach me Greek as we go along the way so that I can swim in this, like, quite challenging seas between these islands and then get off and go and speak to the local community and talk to them about island life and eat their amazing local food and then go off to the next island and... Um, that's what, you know, a kind of Greek Odyssey, really understand the ancient Greek history. Um, that's what I'd do if the rich uncle called me up. So, it's I got love my it.
2: Yeah. So, biking the 50 states, running the length of New Zealand, now swimming the length of Greece. Are you doing a triathlon?
1: <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I love swimming, though. Actually, I would just dream about swimming on the run. I just would dream all the time about swimming. So, um, I feel like there's a big swim in me at some point. Definitely. Um, I love open water swimming.
2: Wow. You are just full of energy and great ideas. What inspires you? What gets you out of bed every morning?
1: Oh, what gets me out of bed every morning? Um, People and smiles. Like, honestly, I, I'm a people addict. I love to meet someone and, understand them and understand their layers and even if at first they might not seem particularly friendly there's there's a reason for that somewhere along the way and I honestly believe call me an idiot but I honestly believe that everyone is good and has the capacity for good and and bad things happen that make people turn the other way um but it really is just that, just um, trying to. And when you see people come out of their shells and, and a community created because people have found something they're passionate about, and you're you f- you're finding what you're passionate about as well, then that is just a cycle of like infectious energy. Um, and that's that's what pushes me forward. Really, is is being surrounded by people that are as passionate about what they're doing, but that might be completely different to mine. Um, but yeah, that we're all we're all after the same thing.
2: You know, it required a prerequisite for meeting all those people is getting out and doing oh, something.
1: 100%. 100%, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's the, the same thing happens on adventures. The amount of days I'd start the day and I'd think, well, this is going to be a rubbish day. I've got to run this course, which I think is going to be really boring and nothing's going to happen. The weather looks rubbish. And then something amazing would happen. And so you really do just have to step out there and let it unfold. Um and, and yeah, life is full of surprises, wonderful surprises. So definitely getting outdoors and doing things, that, sometimes just doing things for the heck of it with no reason, no agenda, um, just to learn a new skill. Uh, I think, yeah, people will be amazed at what they find.
2: It occurred to me this week that we live in a time when the world has been largely explored. Um, the, you know, <laughs> Columbus did his bit, Magellan did his bit, and we've all kind of have a feel now for the world. It's mapped. Right yeah and people like you, I think you're the pioneers that settled the West, you know back <laughs> in at the the turn of the of the nineteenth century. I think that um people like you are the ones, the Magellans who set out to see if they could <laughs> sail all the way around the planet, you know and but be- because those unknown adventures have kind of been used up, mm. we're finding the new adventures, and that adventurous spirit is alive and well,
1: yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and that's why they have to be, you know, Every lots of things have been conquered, which is why sometimes I think being, being the first or being the fastest isn't so important anymore. What's important is that you follow something you're passionate about. So I've got a friend that, goes and she explores places and she does artwork of it. She draws and that's her passion. And she's, she's showing us that place with, with fresh eyes in a new way, through a new lens. And so that's the, the new kind of exploration, I think. It's kind of explorations of, that are born of people's passions.
2: I think it's fantastic. I really do. What you're doing is touching other people's lives along the way. And you know the question we like to kind of wrap up with is how does what you're doing benefit others? But you've made that pretty clear, the, the inspiration that you offer for students, the people yep. that you meet along the way, the uh, micro-adventures that you're encouraging people to go out and try. Um, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we've, we've done London, but also, you, I mean, weekends are so so accessible as well for micro-adventures. Um, I think I realized, having come back from the States, that I don't know my back garden nearly nearly well enough. So I decided... I'd never seen Hadrian's Wall, which is one of the greatest walls of the Roman Empire that was ever built. And um, it's this huge structure. It's sort of, you know, 20, 20 feet tall and um, and really, really wide. Um, and I decided that I'd go and dress up as a Roman soldier with my friend and run along it for four days just because we wanted to learn about it. So there are things like that that can be done as well. Um, but as far as having an impact goes, um, I, someone said to me in a talk the other day that it's been scientifically proven as as science as far as science can that one smile or one thing you do has an impact on a thousand people by the time the ripple effect has, has passed through and if you thought about that you know every day you walk down the street if you just smile at someone or a compliment pops into your head and you and you just let it come out your mouth and you tell that person for no reason other than you know it's going to make them feel happy and good about themselves then you never know what they're going well that's going to do to their day so I just always try and remember that Um, and that's the way you can have impact is on a a small, really grassroots level, one person at a time, and then let the ripples go out.
2: Cool. Cool. Last question. Do you have a funny story for us?
1: Um, uh, lots of funny stories. My, my funny, the one the kids laugh at the most is, um, the last section of the trail goes up something called 90 mile beach, which bizarrely is not 90 miles long. Um, it's a very, very spiritual significant beach for the Maori culture because it takes you five days if you walked along it it would take you five days and they say that when a, a Maori person dies that's their spirit takes those five days to walk down the beach and they climb down this gnarly tree at the end at the lighthouse um, and they go into the sea and they go back to where they came from. So it's a very spiritual place. And there's not many people there. Um, i probably saw, I'd, I'd run on it for three days and I saw one person in the in the first day and then I hadn't seen anyone else, just expanses of beach and seals. Um, and I bent down behind this rock with about 17, 17 miles to go on the whole run. Um, and I bent down I got pretty well attuned to taking peas while I was on the run. So I didn't even have to take my backpack off. I could just do this like semi squat. <laughs> And pull my shorts forward. So I was just doing this. And for some reason, something popped into my head. It just said, look, like, look to your left, look to your left. And I looked left. And this busload of Japanese tourists come <laughs> down the beach, waving at me, taking pictures. And so I just had to like act natural and pretend I wasn't taking a pee, which was really awkward. Um, and it's because at low tide, they use they use the beach as a kind of a tourist run. You can drive a bus along it. It's that wide and that, that well packed. Um, but it only happens once a day and i would missed it on all the other days. I'd, I'd been off the beach by that point, camped up or whatever else. So um, yeah, that was a bit of a shock.
2: But. but... <laughs> busload of Japanese tourists it (laughs) It doesn't get any more classic than that does it
1: no not really
2: (laughs) (laughs) wow well thank you so much for your time today and for sharing with our audience you know your inspiration for adventure it's been a lot of fun to visit with you and people listen go to annamcnuff.com and follow what she's up to because there's a lot more of this inspiration where this came from thank you thank you For all of our listeners out there, until the next show, get out there and have some fun.
0: First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes.